let's go to back to Martin Luther. If you were here last Sunday, we had a cliffhanger. And uh, um, uh, what we talked about last Sunday was Martin Luther uh, uh, had been called in front of the emperor of, of what's left of the Holy Roman Empire. And the Catholic Church is there. And the indictments are, are going against Luther. And Luther is called in front of the emperor with his life on the line, his life as a heretic. See, we, we just, we have a separation of church and state. And we debate about what that means in America and what it means and what it should mean and, and all of this stuff. But I want to tell you, it's very different than what life was like before separation of church and state in Germany in the 1500s. In Germany in the 1500s, when you're born, you get baptized into the church. But that same baptism, which, by the way, was mandatory, that same baptism is what made you uh, an appropriate person in the kingdom. It subjected you to taxation. It subjected you to all of the records. If you weren't going to be baptized as an infant, your life was forfeit. The, we'll study next week the Anabaptists who baptized as a, adults. The movement arose in the 1500s. And, and those people, they get killed because of it. Because they were doing something contrary to government and the way the government was set up. Well, Luther is part of this government, yet he's a member of the church. And if you don't do things right, the church or the government has the right to kill you for teaching heresy, because that was considered treason. That was considered something that was leading the citizenry away from its obligation first to God and then to God's rulers. So Luther gets called in front of the Diet, which means like a, a mega assembly, the Diet of Worms from Lubbock. They, they would pronounce it Worms, but, but it's the Diet of Worms. I won't make another stab at Neil's joke. He said my delivery was really bad. You want to know why Luther was so frail and thin? It's that diet of worms. A little better? Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, uh, that goes back. Luther is called in front of the diet of worms. Eck, Jonathan Eck is the, the man who is uh, interrogating him on behalf of the Catholic Church. They lay out 42 of Luther's writings on a table. They ask Luther the question, are these books yours? Luther says yes. They ask him the question, do you defend them or recant? And with the whole room there and the emperor watching, this young miner's son who dropped out of law school to become a monk. Just one small guy in one small town of 4,000 people in Germany. God is used to set the world on edge. And the, the emperor himself, the personal representative of the pope, the, the, the powers that be are all gathered in this room to hear his response. And if you were here last week, I told you that Luther's response first was, uh, can I have a day to think about it? <laughs> And uh, the, the Catholic interrogator said, no, you're, you're a professor of theology. You know if you're going to recant or not. You know that's why we're here. Emperor says, eh, give him a day. May save us some trouble. Luther comes back the next day, 6 p.m., standing room only. There's a secretary who's stenographer who's taking all of this down. We have it taken down by eyewitnesses. 
Same questions. Are these your writings? Yes. Do you defend them or do you recant? And Luther's response is, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Amen. The room erupts. Everybody's just stunned. Luther has not recanted. He stood and defied the emperor. He has stood and defied the pope through the pope's personal representative. The emperor declares, quote, we want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic. By the way, that means burned alive. Okay? Luther had been promised safe passage. There was some immediate hubbub around the town because Luther had his supporters there. And they weren't few. There were a lot. There was an indication and some, some notes put up that had kind of abbreviated code language that said the, the, the people will revolt. And it was enough to where people went to the emperor and said, you know, you're not from these parts. Trust us. There's going to be a revolution if you seize Luther, especially when you promised him safe passage back to Wittenberg. And so the emperor says, well, okay, he can have safe passage back. Uh, just put a bounty on his head. And uh, Luther leaves. Luther goes back and he flees back in a horse-drawn carriage. He's got his buddy with him and a couple other people. And as Luther's fleeing on the way back, about 10 o'clock at night, you're near the Black Forest in Germany. It's dark. They didn't have street lights in the 1500s period, much less in the, the Black Forest in this road. So, and, and, and it's clear, Luther's life is forfeit. Okay, I mean, it's out there for anybody to take. You'll be hailed a hero and maybe get a bounty from the Pope and the Emperor. So Luther's in the carriage. It's being raced back to Wittenberg. The goal is get back there before anything bad happens. And out of the forest come galloping knights in full night garb, as in you can't even tell who they are. They've got the masks and everything else. They come galloping down on horseback. And they stop Luther. They stop the caravan or the, the wagon. They stop the people, and they demand Martin Luther. And everybody's petrified and some say, no, we're not going to give him up. And the knights said, your lives are forfeit if you don't. And they physically grab Martin Luther and they throw him on a horse and off they ride. They leave the others alive to go tell everyone that Luther has been captured. And the others go back and do so. And everybody assumes Luther is dead. Luther was actually taken to a castle, Wartburg. It was uh, um, basically at that point in time deserted. Turns out the, the knights that captured Luther had been sent by Frederick the Wise, Peter Ustinoff in the movie. <laughs> He's the guy who's been taking care of Luther this whole time, but he never does it directly. In the movie, uh, Ustinoff, uh, Frederick the Wise, has more contact with Luther than he really had. He, Luther, uh, Frederick the Wise always kept insulated distance from him so he could live. I think politicians call it plausible deniability. It's the idea, it's the idea that you can say, I didn't talk to him. So, and, uh, you know, and you just never have to report that it's my number one guy who did it for me. And uh, uh, Frederick the Wise had Luther kidnapped. 
under the guise of Luther being caught and punished, but in fact, he was, Luther was whisked away to Castle Wartburg. And once there, uh, Luther is put into a room. He, he, he realizes that he hasn't been kidnapped for death, that he's been kidnapped for protection. And Luther will wind up spending the next several years in this castle, living by himself in essence. Which, by the way, I might add, drove him crazy. He hated being by himself. He was not a good self-person. Luther uh, becomes Knight George. That's the name he takes. He starts dressing like a knight. He takes off his monk's cowl, the bald spot up here. He's able to grow his back. He proceeds to do so and uh, becomes Knight George. And uh, uh, there is a fella, a painter, a famous painter now, named Cranich the Elder. He had three kids who painted, and one of them was Cranich the Younger, so they call him Cranich the Elder. Cranich the Elder painted this painting of Luther as Knight George. He was a contemporary of Luther. So this is an accurate rendition of what Luther looked like as a knight, as opposed to being a monk. By the way... Cranich's paintings are now in the Louvre and other places, but some of them look to me really dorky. And I thought, you know, what is this guy? Turns out he's like the mayor of Wittenberg who doubles as a painter or something, and nothing personal against the mayor here in Houston, but let him be a mayor, not a painter. This guy's got paintings in the Louvre, though, so what do I know? Um, that's his painting of Luther. Luther. Luther is locked up in his locked up. He's he's basically can't leave. If he leaves, he's going to be reported. Now this castle is off by itself in the woods, so you can get out some. And the castle it turns in on itself, so you can walk around. I'm not saying he's locked up in a room, but he doesn't have exposure to many people, and he doesn't have much to do. So Luther starts translating the Bible into common German. Luther was a good scholar. He had good linguistic skills, especially his Greek. And Luther had in his possession a Greek New Testament and a Latin New Testament that had been published by a, a fellow contemporary named Desiderius Erasmus out of Rotterdam. Um, if you want to, after class, you're welcome to come up and look uh, and touch. And, and I'll just be gentle because this book um, is not a first edition, it's, uh, but it's pretty close. This is 1543. So this is about uh, less than 20 years after the time Luther's locked up. Luther's still alive when this one was printed. Um, uh, and this, is an, uh, this will give you an idea of, of what he had. And like it's got Latin in here too. So if you are at all buzzed by that, do. Um, I, I, Becky and I also have a, a, a Lutheran Bible. And by that I mean it's, a, it's one of Luther's editions because ultimately Luther translates the entire Old and New Testament. Now again, this is not a first edition. If it was, uh, I would not be allowed to stand up here and hold it. But this also dates from the 1500s. This is within 50 years of Luther's death and final uh, edition of, of the, the Bible. And it's really interesting to look at because it's written in German. And, and Luther went to so much trouble to get his German translation accurate when Luther was having to translate the Old Testament, uh, he did the New Testament while he's in confinement. And he did pretty good with that. The Old Testament, he had to get some Hebrew help. And not only Hebrew help, he had to get some German help. Because when you read in the Old Testament about the sacrifices, it was so important to Luther to get it all right, he would go to butchers to find out what the common German terminology was for the various entrails within the various animals that had to be butchered and offered to God in sacrifice. 
because he wanted to use the common language that uh, uh, was used in Germany in the day. And that's what he did. In fact, the, the, there were a number of dialects in German. And the first book I ever read on Luther, I didn't read as a theological student. I read it because I did linguistic studies. And Luther took a German dialect that was used in, in the courts of Saxony, and that was his basic dialect he used when he translated the Bible into German. That became the predominant German tongue that is now spoke today as modern German. And it became the modern German tongue simply because Luther used it in the Lutheran Bible. And that became the Bible that was used by the German people. So it's a, a fascinating way that, that all of this has developed into history. We are starting to get close enough in history where what went on is directly traceable to what happens today. Well, Luther does his entire translation of the Bible over his lifetime and is constantly revising it as he learns new words, new phrases and things. He wanted it. In, he, he said one time, he said, I want Moses to be so German that people read him and don't think he's a Jew. Now, Martin Luther was anti-Semitic later on in life, so I'm not real sure that that's all a positive statement from him. But, but the goal of him, the goal of Luther was to make this so readable that it's in everyday language. We've got Bibles like that. We tend to take it for granted because we do. I love the statistics Scott gave this morning, or maybe it was David, I don't remember which one gave this part, but they gave the statistics of how many, oh, it was David, of how many people in the world don't have a Bible in their language. And we've got like bukus. My daughter Rachel last night's trying to type some posting on some MySpace listing about something, and she wants a verse, and she wants to know which translation is going to read best. Yeah, because we've got so many options. Now... Meanwhile, Luther's locked up. What's happening to the movement, if we can call it that? And I think at this point we can. Luther, you'll recall, served as a professor, a Bible professor at the college university in Wittenberg. Not a big town, small school, but a school that was a center of buzz. Because once Luther started teaching this faith that seemed so radical and so out there, students from all over wanted to come study at Wittenberg. All of a sudden, it was the hot school. It was the Texas Tech of Germany. And, and so a lot of people would go there because they wanted to hear this. Now, you've got all of these people that are at this school. Luther's gone. He's in hiding. And people figure out pretty quick he's not dead because he starts sending out letters. He wants to get, you know, he'll sign his letters, you know, uh, from the island of Patmos which is where John, you know, wrote the Revelation because he'd been uh, uh, sent there. And, and so, so Luther's sending out letters. People know he's alive. They just don't know where he is for certain. And he's protected by these knights in a castle. No one's coming to get him very easily anyway. So while Luther's locked up, back at Wittenberg, there was an old professor, not that much older than Luther, but 10 years or so older than Luther. His name was Andreas Karlstadt. And Andreas Karlstadt, that's a, a, a supposedly a, a decent likening of him. Andreas Karlstadt is continuing. Originally, he'd been Luther's teacher. In a sense, he becomes Luther's student. 
as Luther explains the gospel, and, and Karlstadt jumps on the gospel. Karlstadt moves forward. He's fed up with the Catholic Church. He's fed up with the, the stagnant services. He's fed up with what he considers unscriptural practices. So he just blazes a brand new trail. Christmas, 1521, a monumental day in the history of Protestantism. Andreas Karlstadt stands up to deliver the Christmas sermon at the church at Wittenberg, and he does it in German. But what's more, he gives the Mass in German. And for the first time in a thousand years since German had been spoken, for the first time, the people attending that Mass heard in their own tongue, This is my body which is broken for you. What's more, the Mass at the time, the way it was celebrated, only the, 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 the clergy were allowed to drink of the wine because of the doctrine uh, of transubstantiation, which, which the church taught that, that when these elements become appropriately blessed by the priest, then Jesus Christ himself is re-crucified in a sense and, and actually physically present in these elements. They physically become the, the, the body and the blood of Christ. And because of that doctrine, uh, uh, the Catholic Church taught at the time that the, the celebrants of the Mass, the participants, the laity, they were able... The, the, the priest has to handle the, the body of Christ. They can't. They open their mouth. The priest puts the wafer in. Okay? And the priest, they don't get to drink of the wine because if they ever spill the drop, the blood of Christ has been wasted and spilt. See, these elements held a, 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 a... There was an understanding that in these elements, God's grace itself was actually being dispensed to the recipient. And if you're Catholic, that makes a lot of sense to you. If you're Protestant, you're scratching your head saying, that makes no sense to me. But that's what's going on. Now, Karlstadt stands up and he says, I'm giving the wine to everybody. Karlstadt stands up, and while he'll put the wafer on your tongue, one fella, it drops, and Karlstadt tells him to pick it up. And the guy just practically has an apoplectic fit because he can't believe he's allowed to touch it. Karlstadt goes and preaches in plain clothes, not investments, because all are priests before God. Karlstadt puts into practice the very things that Luther had been writing. Now, that's what he looks like there. That's what he looks like in the movie. <laughs> I strongly recommend you go get the movie. Movie's not perfect on all the details, but it's pretty good. It's a really good watch. Um, this Christmas service was altogether different. And as it's a different Christmas service... Um, oh, and Karlstadt didn't stop there, by the way. He says, no more celibacy for priests. And he marries his 15-year-old girl. Um, he, uh, back then that would have been considered a woman. In my house, that's a girl. And that's about half the age they need to be when they get married. <laughs> and that's because I'll let them marry young at 30 or so. <clears throat> he, uh, 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 you know, Karlstadt just, I mean, it's just huge, the changes he makes. And the reception of the people is one, unfortunately, of violence. 
a lot of the common people think, aha, this is us taking over. And so they go into the churches, they start smashing the icons because you shouldn't have a graven image. That was the, the teaching of Karl Stadt. So they start smashing the icons. They, they run the priests out that, that don't buy into the new thing and threaten them. They stone some of them. And the violence is huge. When Frederick the Wise finds out that the violence has broken out in the church at Wittenberg, he uh, tells Karlstadt to cool his jets. Um, uh, Luther is still in hiding. Luther hears about it, and he's just heart sick. He wasn't trying to start a, a, a violent revolution. And he was trying to teach the love of God. And there's a difference. And so Luther's heartsick. Luther wants to come out of hiding and tells Frederick as much. Frederick says, no, if you do, you're going to get killed, and I can't have that on my head. Luther writes him back and says, you don't have to have it on your head. You've done all you can. It'll be on my head. And ultimately, I'll get killed when God wants me to. I need to go. The city council of Wittenberg invites Luther, please come. So Luther returns after two years in, in isolation. Luther returns to Wittenberg, and he goes up and ascends the pulpit, which you can still see in the Wittenberg Castle Church. He ascends the pulpit, and he starts to preach. Um, by the way, that's Luther's uh, tombstone. Luther's actually buried beneath that pulpit, if you go see it. Uh, Melanchthon is buried over here. Frederick the Wise is buried in the same church. Uh, it's a, a part of history that's very close. Um, Luther goes, and Luther starts preaching, and he preaches to his church the, the love of God and the love of Christ, and he preaches a very measured control. And what's happening, I told you church and state were not separated. It's really interesting what happens here. Uh, the city council basically makes Luther the ruler of Wittenberg, in a sense, so that Luther's got the authority to be able to do what he sees fit. And uh, uh, that's what Luther becomes. Luther brings changes to the church, but he brings them in tempered measure. He, 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 he doesn't do it as radically big. Now, having said that, there were still huge radical changes. Previously, you go to church, you want to hear singing, it's going to be a couple of the trained monks that are chanting, or the priests that are chanting. Luther brings congregational singing to bear. I, it's an invention. There aren't churches doing congregational singing. Luther loves music. He played the lute, which was kind of like their goofy little guitar thing. And uh, 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 Luther loves to sing. He starts writing songs for the church. Within five years, he produces his first church hymnal. They start having classes instead of our Bible school. They have singing school where Luther, and they'll do it in homes, Luther teaches the people how to sing because they don't really know to, know how to, excuse me. And so Luther starts congregational singing. He not only starts congregational singing, he does proceed to, to, to write a catechism and, and to move. Uh, uh, in, in some ways, Luther was still very Catholic in what he did, but, but you see some very measured changes that he assumes. Now, what's his most famous hymn? Yes, un, ein Festberg est unser Gott. <laughs> or in English, a mighty fortress is our God. 
Um, by the way, that's a picture of an actual signed uh, uh, transcript of it where Luther wrote. Now, the, the hymns, well, they didn't sing hymns. The, the songs, the chants, the Gregorian chants and others that the church was singing before Luther were very Gregorian chantish. They followed the, the right uh, things. Luther, on the other hand, by the way, who's the most famous Lutheran musician? about 50 years after Luther. Went to the same church, baptized, I think, in the same church Luther was, but no, in Iceland, Bonn. Grew up at Luther's church. Is Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach. Anyway, John Sebastian Bach. Um, this is uh, uh, an actual hymn. What Luther did is he would uh, take melodies that were contemporary melodies being sung in all the bar taverns by the drunks, and he'd put Christian lyrics to it. And that got so many people so upset with Luther, they thought, look, this pagan, he's out there, he's taking these modern melodies and putting religious lyrics to them. And this is just outlandish. Of course, now what he did are the hymns that we consider the good right hymns that are the proper way to sing. And it's the people who are putting it to the new melodies are the ones doing the outlandish things. Why can't they just do things the way Luther did? Um, but at the time, Luther would have had a screaming electric guitar searing through the song. Um, Alan Rigsby, come up. We've got four verses. We need to all stand up and sing in honor of Luther, the Reformation hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So uh, Alan's going to lead us. Alan, your lyrics are right here if that helps you. Or you can see them. Okay. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing, for still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be loose. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabbath, His name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The Prince of Darkness grim, we 
tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours Through Him who with us sideth Let good then kindred go This mortal life also The body they may kill God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. Be seated. Now think about this from Luther's perspective. A mighty fortress is our God. He takes it basically from a psalm, but this is a guy who's, who, who in a fortress for two years had his life saved by a fortress. He understands a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. No one breaches the walls of God. You think about the last verse. That word, Jesus, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. See, that's the dig at the, like, Pope, okay? <laughs> that's, that's what makes this a protest song, you protest dance. Um, that word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who's on our side, not theirs. Who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. Turn your back on your family. If they're going to write you out of the will for following God, you let it happen. You, if, if the, you know, Luther's writing this. His life is forfeit if he gets outside of the protection of the people that love him. And he writes the song. And people who follow him, do you know what they start calling them? Lutherans. This is Lutheranism. This is recognized, and it's not exclusive. There's other Protestant movements going, taking place. Although this is the one that, that uh, uh, earns ultimately the name Protestant because they would protest uh, in the way they did it. Now, meanwhile, uh, Luther gets married. He marries a nun. He, he goes and he gets these nuns and he tries to give them all off in marriage because the nunneries kind of just dissolve. They dissolve the monasteries. They dissolve the nunneries. They dissolve all of this stuff. I mean, they're changing massively. And all of the nuns he manages to get married except this one, Catherine von Bora. And she's picky. And she, I think, you know, I don't know. I haven't talked to her lately. But I think... <laughs> She had her eye on Luther, because Luther didn't plan on getting married himself, but every time he'd try and pawn her off, uh, no, it's not that nobody wanted her, it's that she didn't want any of them. You want to know what she really looked like? That's her in the movie. Cranich the Elder, he painted her. You want to see it? Okay. She kind of looks like a nun to me, just without the clothes. Okay? So... Uh, she says, I'm not going to have any of these people. Luther says, well, woman, who will you have? And she says, well, I'll take you. 
And he says, well, I wasn't going to get married, but okay, I might as well. I can't leave you there alone. So Luther marries Catherine von Bora. In fact, Luther's asked one time about astrology. I didn't put this in the lesson, but it's a great story. He says, astrology. You mean to tell me someone can look at the stars and say that the son of a miner who's going to drop out of law school because of a lightning bolt, become an Augustinian monk, become a priest, leave the priesthood, disobey the Pope, and uh, then marry and have six kids? He says, ain't enough stars in the sky to have all that up there. Um, They have six children. Luther becomes a family man. Uh, he has table talks because he has students come in. Ultimately, the uh, uh, elector, Frederick the Wise, gives Luther the old monastery. So that becomes his home. It's not a huge thing, but it's a neat little home. And Luther invites students in. And they're always gathered around his table eating. I think sometimes much to his wife's chagrin. He's got six kids running around. At one point in time, one of his kids is... Is absolutely bawling, and because uh, Luther's who he is, students are writing down everything he says as if, you know, God has spoken. And so we have all of these, it's called table talk, all of these things Luther said around the table, uh, one of which is, child, what have you done that I should love you so? You've disturbed this whole house with your bawling. Just Luther, an everyday moment. Um, how about this one? This is the sort of thing that caused the church fathers to vilify marriage. (laughs) There's another time Luther is holding court over the dinner table when his wife finally says, Doctor, that's what she called him, Doctor, why don't you stop talking and eat? At which point he replied, I wish that women would repeat the Lord's Prayer before opening their mouths. Um, This... (laughs) You read this, some of what he says is rather coarse. I won't even repeat it. Uh, he was an interesting fellow. Uh, one day he comes home, and uh, there are some students around, but he comes home, he's taught, he's preached, he's had a long, hard day working, you know, his life, and he comes home, and he finally plops down in the equivalent of a Barca lounger in the 1500s, and he leans back thinking, oh, what a day. And his wife says, um, let's talk politics. I've been with the children all day, and I haven't had any adult conversation, and I'm starved for conversation. What do you think about the new princess of so-and-so land, and and how is all of that going to work with the rest of the royalty household? At which point, Luther says, all my life is patience. I have to have patience with the Pope, I have to have patience with the heretics, and I have to have patience with Katie. That's what he called his wife, Catherine. Um, he just was a guy had, had great wit, but he had, I mean, he was an everyday person. And it's really interesting. At one point, his daughter Magdalena is 14 years old, I believe. By the way, that's another painting by that same, by the mayor of Wittenberg. Um, but that one's pretty good. I like that. Uh, Magdalena, one of his six children, and when she's 14, she's on uh, uh, what they think is her deathbed. And she's sick unto death. And Luther's on his knees by her side. And uh, uh, everybody thinks she's dying. And Luther says to Luther, prays, God, would you heal her? Yet not my will, but thine be done. And uh, he said, Luther says to her, um, you know, you, you uh, 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 are happy to stay here with your earthly father. But if need be, would you also be happy to go stay with your heavenly father? And she says, Daddy, yes, um, I'm God's, whatever comes. 
and she dies in his arms as he's holding her. And uh, uh, he says, uh, my little daughter, you will rise and shine like the stars in the sun. And he comments after a pause how strange it is to know she is at peace and all is well. And yet I am so sorrowful. Uh, an ordinary guy, a father, a husband, and yet a man that God used to totally change history. Um, Luther lived until 1546. Last 15 years of his life, you don't, a lot of the biographies don't talk much about the last 15 years of his life. He kind of peaked before that, in my opinion. Last 15 years of his life, he, 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 he wasn't on his game as much. He wrote some horribly anti-Semitic stuff uh, toward the end of his life. He got real upset with some Jews, uh, Jewish rabbis, and he basically called on everybody to kill the Jews and to burn their houses and everything. The materials Luther wrote were used and quoted by the Nazis to justify what they did in World War II, um, which I think is a crying shame, and I, I'm sure Luther would realize that as well. But uh, uh, he was an incredible part of our heritage and our history in the Western world and certainly in the Protestant churches. We will explore his impact more. Next week, um, we're going with the Anabaptist. See, you ought to like, like the last half of that name. Um, but before we do that, here are our points for home. Um, history is not haphazard. And neither is your life. Because you have a history. And your history is, is in God's hand. And, and I'm not saying that, that you have no choice in how you live, but I am saying that there is a divine master who knows what your choices are, who has a plan for your life, who holds you in the hollow of his hand and in the palm of his hand. And as Dick Hill said this morning, who loves you and cares for you more than, than you'll ever be able to understand. And, and what happens in your life is not haphazard, and it's not outside of God's control. And we don't have the world vision for it. That's because we're not God. But we have the assurance like Paul wrote to the Philippian church in Philippians 2 when he told them to continue to work out. I, I think uh, David preached on this Wednesday night. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and, and, and trembling because God's working in you to, to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, the, the image there is... One, if you go back and look at the Greek, have you ever made bread where you need bread? When you need bread, you're working out the yeast because the yeast is already in there and you're kneading it throughout the bread dough. Is the image, the idea. And so we just continue to, to need and work because God's in there working and he's going to cause the, the growth. Uh, second point for home. The scripture's not a big book that sits on your shelf or your coffee table. It's God's Word. And it's not God's Word to be on the wall and say, wow, look at God's Word on the wall or on the shelf. It's God's Word to permeate your heart and your mind. It's God's Word for you to understand. It's God's Word for you to meditate on. It's God's Word for you to nourish you, to give you strength. You know, the Psalm 119, 105 says that your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows the way we're to lead. It shows the way to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and it shows the path we are to walk. 
We have it in English. We have it in multiple versions. Take advantage of that. Recommit your life right now to reading your Bible every day. If you don't get more than one verse read before you go to sleep at night or when you wake up in the morning, read your Bible every day. And finally, godly change is a good thing. I know I'm a biggest rut guy in the world in some ways. I like things exactly the way they are. But I'm here to tell you, even our world itself will change in God's timing. The Bible ends with the picture in Revelation where John sees a new heaven and a new earth. Aren't we glad he's going to change this? He says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. That's not going to be one that's got bus bombers. And if you go on our trip, you'll have it to the old Jerusalem to compare it to. Um, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. And he who was sitting on the throne said, I'm making everything new. See, there are changes that we're going to have in our church now because we have a new pastor. That's just going to happen. He's got a vision that that we brought in that we're excited. I'm excited to, to see and to follow. All of the changes, some of them may make us discomfortable. Doesn't matter. That's what God's about. And we embrace that and we thank God for that. May not be the song we like. May not be the dress we want. May not be ba ba ba. Doesn't matter. God's at work here. And let our hearts be changed. Let our minds be changed. Let's show God that we're on His team playing the game He wants to play instead of expecting him to play ours. Okay? Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much that we have the chance to have this class and to share. I pray for our class tonight, I mean this afternoon. I, I pray that uh, you'll get people to show up at Fuddruckers that need to be there to help in leadership and things. I thank you for all the, the work that Lewis and so many others put into that aspect of this class. But most of all, Lord, I just pray you'll, your spirit will touch all of our hearts in here and put in us a deeper conviction to uh, uh, appreciate the, the ready access we have to your word and, and to appreciate the wonders and, and blessings we have in this country. Uh, and I pray that we won't just live blind to those, but, but with great gratitude in our heart, we'll uh, appreciate the blessings you've given us for what they are. Uh, take care of the class this spring break week. In Jesus' name, amen.